Um, but this morning I have the absolute privilege of kicking off our new series called Tales of Old. Uh, this is where we are going to be taking a fresh look at some of the Old Testament classics. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible is structured, uh, there are 66 books in the entire Bible and it's split into two parts, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's got 39 books. Uh, and then in the New Testament, there are 27 of them. The Old Testament essentially covers everything from uh, the time span from the beginning of creation and then all the way to just before when Jesus arrived on the scene, right? And then in the New Testament, it covers from the life of Jesus onwards to the end of the world, to then reconciliation and eternity in heaven. Uh, and so I remember trying to explain this concept of how the Bible is structured to a bunch of teenage boys a few years ago. And these boys had never once in their lives picked up a Bible, had no idea about anything. And they were like, no way. So like, like the Bible like talks about the future. And I was like, yep. And they were like, and it like tells you how the end of the world is going to happen. I was like, yep. And they were like, so, so are we like currently in like chapter 2021? And I was like, I wish it was that easy because then we would have all seen COVID coming. Um, no, no, absolutely not. Um, but then so many people today do often tend to disregard the Old Testament, thinking that it's irrelevant or obsolete because um, it's very different to our practices today. Um, but actually, um, if you were here last week, you, were, you may remember a quote that I had mentioned when I talked about this series, and it's a quote from St. Augustine, um, who is indeed a saint and one of the highest esteemed Christian philosophers of all time, thank you, I'll let you know, um, where he had explained, I didn't know that last week, he had explained this, uh, the scriptures like this, he had said, in the Old Testament, we have the New Testament concealed, but in the New Testament, we have the Old Testament revealed. So essentially what he is saying here is that the two work in tandem. So the Old Testament will never and has never been irrelevant because the two of them go hand in hand in explaining each other. So I'm really, really excited as we get to dive into this series and unpack some tales of old together as a church family. The story that I'm going to be diving into this morning is the book of Esther. Have we got any Esther fans in the house this morning? We, we love a good book of Esther. Who of you are not familiar with the story of Esther at all? Okay, okay, a couple of you, a couple of you, fantastic. We're gonna dive into it this morning. Um, and so that's what I am going to be opening up. Now, the interesting thing that you need to know off the bat is that the book of Esther is one of uh, two books, so it's very unique, one of two books in the Bible uh, that does not make mention of God at all. So no mention of God the Father, no mention of Jesus the Son, no mention of the Holy Spirit, absolutely nothing, zap, right? The second book that also doesn't make mention of God is uh, Song of Songs which is classified as a poetry book. It's a little bit of a, a raunchy little poetry book, that one. And um, so it's not quite surprising that Song of Songs doesn't necessarily mention the name of God, whereas the book of Esther falls into the historical category. So the fact that it's a historic book of the Bible that doesn't make mention at all of God's name is very, very unique. Um, but however, it does not mean that God is absent throughout the text. One thing that the book teaches us is that when we cannot necessarily see God's hand, we need to be looking for his fingerprints. 
I'll say that one more time. When we cannot see God's hand, we need to learn to look for His fingerprints. And I can assure you that His fingerprints are on absolutely every single page of this book. It's filled with dramatic irony, plot twists galore, uh, very questionable beauty pageants. It's filled with drunken decision-making, brutal death and plots for genocide. And of course, one of the most iconic pep talks of all time. And if you know it, you know it. For perhaps you were made for such a time as this. But before we take a closer look at the main events of this story, I wanted to just let you know the angle that I'm coming at this morning. And it's a a slightly different angle because each of my points um, are going to learn a lesson from each of the four main characters. So we've got um, King Xerxes, uh, who is the the king of Persia. And then we've got his right-hand man, who's Haman. uh, And then we've got Esther, who becomes queen. And then her cousin who raised her, Mordecai. Uh, But in order to properly unpack lessons that we learn from each of the characters, we need to really dive into the story first. So that's what I'm going to do. And let's jump right into it. Uh, The book opens with Queen Vashti. So she was queen before Esther was on the scene and she gets dethroned. Okay. Uh, So the book opens with an introduction to the king of Persia. This is King Xerxes and his queen at the time who is Vashti. The Persian empire At its height, it encompassed 127 provinces throughout what we now know as the Middle East. So he was a very, very powerful king. Long story short, he loved to show off his lavish wealth um, and throw banquets with an open bar. Funnily enough, I'm I'm surprised that the Bible wants to mention that. Uh, But he would often say to his guests, drink as much as you want. There is no restraint. Um, So it really gives you a good picture of the kind of king that he is. At the end of one of his banquets, he had called for Queen Vashti to appear before the crowd wearing her crown. Um, And according to Persian customs, many scholars actually believe that this request would have more accurately be worded as appear before the crowd wearing only your crown. And so Queen Vashti refuses, right? This sends uh, the drunken King Xerxes into an absolute rage. And he is advised to dethrone his then wife and queen and writes a law that she is never to be able to enter his presence again. It is here that we learn that when a king makes a decree using his signet ring to sign it, uh, that decree cannot be undone. And tuck that away for later because that's a really important thing to keep in mind. We then see that Esther is eventually appointed queen. Uh, Now that the king is left without a queen, uh, he instructs the beauty pageant of all beauty pageants to be held across Persia. Now the person who wins this beauty pageant actually has to undergo 12 months of like beauty up up doing. What do you call it? Like a glow up, you know? You guys know, you guys know. Uh, So uh, the the queen who wins has to go through 12 months of um, a whole bunch of beauty treatments to make herself look beautiful for the king. It is that intense. This is when we are introduced to Queen Esther, uh, Esther, who wins and becomes the queen. An interesting thing to note about Esther is that she is an orphan child who was raised by her cousin Mordecai when her parents had died. So they're related and he took her under his wing. They are both Jews, which are God's chosen people and a part of the Jewish community living in Persia at the time. 
Now, Mordecai instructs her very importantly to keep her Jewish identity a secret from the king, which she obeys as she always did. We then see the next part of the story unfold where Mordecai saves the king's life. So he just so happened to overhear at the king's gate two of his guards plotting the king's assassination. So what Mordecai did was he heard that, he passed it on to Esther who was then the queen and she was then able to gain favor with the king because she exposed the plot of the guards. That was uh, searched up to be true. The investigations were exposed and both of the guards were impaled on poles. Seems to be a bit of a common occurrence in this text, which is interesting. So do not come to me and tell me that the Bible is boring. Um, Esther gives credit to Mordecai, and then it's uh, written down in the royal records that Mordecai uh, is the one who saved his life. We then see a tension arise between Mordecai uh, and Haman. Haman is the king's right-hand man, um, and he is our resident villain. Okay, Haman is appointed as the highest in command and he's filled with pride. He just loves himself and he loves to be the center of attention, the main character, if you will, uh, to the point where he organizes for everyone in the land. Uh, there is a decree that is made that everyone must bow or kneel to him every time he enters their presence. Uh, Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, um, leading the reader to the assumption, because the name of God is not mentioned at all in the text, so we're then led to assume that he will not bow because he is a Jew and they only bow to God. Haman decrees to then wipe out all of the Jews. He gets mad. He's like, no, no, I'm not standing for this. So he actually convinces the king uh, that if, if Mordecai is not bowing to me, then he's going to convince all of the Jews to not bow to you. Okay. So then he uh, makes a decree with the king once he convinces him of this. And the king signs it with his signet ring again, saying that there will come a day, and it was about 10 months away, where the king would wipe out all of the Jews in the land. So Haman is trying to commit a genocide here. What he does is that he rolls a dice to essentially seal their fate and the, uh, the date on the dice that is rolled is going to be the day that they will all die. Mordecai's plan we then see start to arise. We're nearly there. Esther is now told by Mordecai to reveal her Jewish heritage to the king who is head over heels in love with her uh, and in the hopes to save her people. The only problem with this is that if anyone comes before the king uninvited, uh, then they can be, they qualify to death, right? Unless he leans his um, staff forward and extends, uh, extends his scepter. Cue the iconic pep talk. Mordecai uh, reminds Esther that if she remains silent, then her and her people will die. But perhaps it was for a time such as this that she was placed in the kingdom. He's essentially saying to her, use your voice. Esther then sends reply to Mordecai saying that she will obey his command uh, if you, uh, and then she says, if I perish, I perish. So that talk gives her the strength that she needs to approach the throne. We then see Esther bring the request before the king. Uh, and this is my favorite part. So not only was the king pleased to see her come before him uninvited, uh, he leaned the scepter towards her. She was able to approach. And then he said to her, my love, what do you want? Even if you want half of my kingdom, I will give it to you. And at this moment, you would assume she's just pep talked up. You know, she's like, you need to save my people. They're about to die. I'm not okay with that. So then he says to her, you know, if you want half the kingdom even, you name it, I'll give it to you. And she goes, 
hmm, why don't you come to a banquet that I'm going to throw tonight? And so I remember reading this as a child and being very frustrated because I was like, that was your moment. You missed it. He's not going to give it to you again. So she invites the king and Haman to this banquet that she then throws later that night. And at this banquet, he then offers her again, what was your request that you wanted to make? And then she says, hmm, why don't you come to a banquet I'm going to throw tomorrow? And so we see then another banquet that is thrown. And I was very confused at this point. Um, But what they do is they accept her offer and they all part ways. This is where the big plot twist in the text happens. As Haman leaves Esther's banquet, he passes Mordecai, who yet again does not bow to him. He then goes home, complains to his wife and says, how dare this Jew not bow or kneel to me? Um, And she says, you know what, babe, why don't you uh, just build... Build a, a 50 foot, uh, a 50 cubit pole, which is actually six stories high. That's huge. 50 cubit pole. And why don't we just get him impaled tomorrow? And he was like, great idea. So he builds that that night. He gets it built. That happens. And then the next day, he starts to go towards the king to convince the king to impale his now enemy. Meanwhile, the king could not sleep that night after Esther's banquet, probably because they drank a lot. He couldn't sleep that night. So what did he do? He requested for a bedtime story to be read to him. And the bedtime story that he chose was the royal records. And so the person that then read to him read the story of how Mordecai had actually saved him from the assassination plot. So then the king goes, oh, did we ever thank Mordecai? And they were like, no, nothing was done for him. So this is where the plot twist thickens. Haman is walking in one end to the royal court. He wants to get Mordecai murdered. Then we have the king brainstorming. How can we thank Mordecai? How can we thank Mordecai for saving my life? He then brainstorms aloud and asks, with Haman in earshot, he asks, what should be done to honor someone that I take delight in? So Haman, obviously being the proud person that he is, You see where it's going? Haman assumes that the recipient of the honor is himself. So what does he do? He starts to announce to the king, oh, you know what you should do? You know what you should do to honor this this man? Uh, And then he goes on to say, you should put him on royal horseback. You should put royal robes on him. You know what? Have a nobleman, one of your highest noblemen, take him around and praise his achievements aloud to the people in the town. The king immediately then instructs Haman to do that for Mordecai. As an expression of his gratitude, this is the biggest plot twist in the entire thing. Uh, And he has no choice, Haman, but to honor what the king has asked. And he takes his enemy that he planned to kill that day around the town, shouting his praises and announcing to the people how the king wants to honor him. Esther's second banquet happens that same evening. So once this whole parade is done, uh, Haman then and Xerxes finally make it into the second banquet. Here, she reveals that she is a Jew. She reveals her request for her entire race to be saved. And then the king is outraged, not at her, but at the person who dared to put this decree in place, knowing that she was a Jew. 
he uh, was outraged that the queen and her people may be taken out of the picture. And then he asks, who dares do this? She then exposes the fact that it was Haman uh, that was behind it all. And in an iconic role reversal, you would think it would take a little bit longer, but no, no, the king orders immediately that Haman have the same death being impaled upon the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. So there's a lot of action happening in this text. Uh, then at the end, we see that the Jews are saved uh, because even though they couldn't revoke the law because it was signed with the signet ring, the king says you can make an edit and in that edit say that they can defend themselves. So all the Jews actually are given permission to fight back and they kill everybody who was out to get them. And that's how salvation comes about for the Jews without a single mention of God. What an outcome. And I feel like I've just almost gone through an entire season of the Kardashians. Uh, but it's crazy to think uh, that this is a story of two faithful Jews who save God's people from mass genocide, yet we cannot see God anywhere in it, right? But what we need to do is look for His fingerprints. And to me, God's fingerprints are found all over the characters' interactions throughout the text. So let's take a look at what our first reminder is. I call this one the Xerxes lesson. And this is that regardless of who is in power, God is always sovereign. Regardless of who is in power, God is always sovereign. Now we have so much to learn from the way that God highlights his orchestration throughout this book. King Xerxes is by no means a Christian. Uh, he's not even a moral character at all. Uh, but let's take a look at two of the main decrees that he puts into law. Uh, it says in Esther chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says this, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. So this is talking about his ex-wife. Uh, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also then, let the king give her royal position to someone who is better than she. When the king's edict is, uh, sorry, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Some of the guys are laughing. <coughs> Here, uh, Xerxes was convinced, right, that he had control. Just imagine if that was written into law today. Oh, the uproar from the feminists, okay. Um, he was convinced that he had control over the Persian women's level of respect for their husbands purely because Queen Vashti refused to obey his command. Uh, this reveals to us that the king was riddled with insecurity. He was hungry for power and easily misled by his royal officials. And we see this all over again a second time when his plan, uh, when Haman brings forward his plan to wipe out the Jews, right? You would think that a king would actually sit with a bit of a level head and go, this doesn't really make sense to me. Maybe we shouldn't do this, but he didn't. He just went with what Haman brought forward. So we see in Esther chapter three, verses eight to nine, uh, verses eight to nine, it'll come up on the screen. It says, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people talking about the Jews uh, dispersed among the people of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. 
If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So he's almost like bribing the king to wipe out the Jews at the end there. Yet even in this less than favorable scenario, the Jews find themselves in here. We know that God actually orchestrated the decree in order for Esther to then be able to take over the throne and bring deliverance for her people. I think too often what we tend to do is we can worry about the people who are in high positions, but forget about the fact that God is actually in the highest position above them. So be encouraged that whoever your current boss may be, uh, or whoever your board may consist of, uh, or whoever even is the party in government at the moment, uh, be encouraged that God is sovereign above it all, and that he will be faithful to bring around his plan one way or the other. Uh, the second lesson here that I want to dive into quickly is called the Haman lesson. Um, and it is do unto others what you wish was done to you. Uh, now, Haman definitely takes the cake for the ultimate example of this concept, um, being obviously that uh, he ends up impaled on the pole that he wants his enemy to die on. Um, but my personal favorite example of this was that conversation that took place after the second feast when he assumed that the king was going to promote him. Uh, and I'll read you the scripture here in Esther chapter 6. It should show up in the screen behind me. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered out, uh, from the outer court palace of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Then Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is, this uh, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He was already the highest in the kingdom. Um, side note, I found it a little bit like I find it quite entertaining to think of what kids would answer these days. Like imagine if you had asked a kid, you know, like, hmm, whose birthday is coming up and what should we buy them for their birthday present? Then they're going to be like, oh, you should get them the best, you know, Lego set that costs $500 and you should get them a car um, and all of these sorts of things. I feel like my teenagers would be like, you need to get me a Bugatti. You need to uh, have my achievements aerial advertised in the sky. Um but, but no, this is what he says. This is Haman's reply. So he answered the king. This is in chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring on a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden. And a uh, with a crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what was done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. 
I love the king's enthusiasm here um, because of how completely oblivious he is to Haman's actual intention when he came through with that answer. Obviously, all of the praises that he was referring to, he wanted done himself um, because he thought that he was getting promoted. Um, But actually, he is being forced to do that to his worst enemy. The lesson that we can learn from Haman's character here is that uh, one of humility and integrity is important. It's a challenge to all who read it to literally check yourself before you wreck yourself. Okay, Uh, let's make sure that we aren't like Haman, that we aren't cutting uh, corners for our personal gain at work. Right. Let's make sure that we are championing other people rather than looking for excuses to tear them down. Let's learn from Haman and make sure that we are doing to others exactly what we want done to ourselves. The third lesson um, that we will dive into quickly is the lesson to, uh, I call this the Esther lesson, uh, to listen to the nudge of the Holy Spirit, even if it doesn't make sense. When I read this book for the very first time as a teenager, um, the moment where she stands before the king but chose not to actually bring her request forward really frustrated me. That was my main sort of takeaway that I was like, why? Why would you do that if that is the one thing that you were told to do? Um, and I would have definitely been of the type to write in the, in the um, margin of my Bible, you had one job, Esther. Um, I was a very emotional Bible scribbler. Um, And then I kept reading and as the plot unfolded, I realized that actually this moment in the text would have been one of the God's fingerprint moments because it makes absolutely no sense. And here it is in Esther chapter 5 verses 2 to 4. So it was when the king saw Esther, uh, Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. It just makes absolutely no sense. But that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. A lot of the time it's a trust exercise and you find out later what the reason was. For Esther, this was a trust exercise that actually ushered in the divine timing of God. That's when God intervened. If Esther hadn't listened to that little nudge to say, actually, now's not the right time, then Haman wouldn't have gone home and made that whole plot and then been humbled the next day. Also, the king wouldn't have gone home, not been able to sleep and read the royal um, books to then find out that, oh, I need to exalt Mordecai. So when we cannot necessarily see the hand of God, we will easily see his fingerprints along the way. I remember for me personally, a a good few years ago, back at our botany campus at one of the night services, I walked past a lady and I haven't seen her. I had never seen her before and I haven't seen her since. Uh, And she was, she just looked like she was having a real moment in worship. She was sitting down. She had her like elbows up on the chairs in front of her in like a prayer position. And I was like, oh, bless, like having a real cool moment with God. And God just nudged me. And I hate when that happens because it's always uncomfortable. Nudged me and he was like, go and give her like a proper hug. Go give her a proper hug. And I was like, (laughs) 
Like I'm a hugger, don't get me wrong, but I'm like, I don't know this chick, God. I was like, she's having a moment, God. I'm not going to interrupt. That would be rude. Uh, I tried. I really tried. I tried to get out of it as much as I could. But God, that's weird. I don't know her. What if she's not a physical touch person? I was like, God, can I meet you halfway and just give her like a Christian side hug? Um, But in the end, I just ran with it. I gave her a huge hug. And this elderly woman, not elderly, she would have been probably in her late 40s. Um, she, she wasn't elderly. I said she wasn't. Um, <clears throat> this really young woman um, <laughs> dug myself a hole, okay. <laughs> this, this teenager broke down in my arms and... <laughs> So I gave her this big hug and she just crumbled in my arms and she started crying. And she then started to explain to me no small talk in between whatsoever. uh, The fact that she was planning on cheating on her husband that night. She unfolds this whole thing that she was planning to do. And she actually said to me, uh, it turns out actually after chatting to her for a couple of hours that night that her husband was perfectly fine. He hadn't done anything wrong to her. Um, But it was just something that she had sort of gave way to. And she said, I was praying for someone to tell me that it was a dumb idea. And I was that someone. I did tell her it was a dumb idea. Uh, And I could have easily not been, is my point, if I just ignored the nudge and said, God, that's awkward. I don't want to give her a hug. She's a stranger. Um, But actually, if I ignored the nudge from the Holy Spirit that made absolutely no sense, then who knows what could have happened to that marriage. This next one that I want to dive into is the final one. And this is what I call my Mordecai lesson. Um, And it is know the outcome, trust the process. Know the outcome, trust the process. Mordecai is like our moral compass in this story. He is the ideal picture of having unwavering faith in God and his promises, even though it's obviously never mentioned in the text. He knows that the outcome is that deliverance will come to God's people. uh, And so he trusts the process, whatever that might look like for them. Um, Have a read with me of the pep talk here that he gives to Esther as she musters up the courage to go before the king with her plea to save the Jews. Mordecai says this, Do not think that uh, in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For you remain, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So that is the context in which he gives her the greatest pep talk known to mankind. And he's saying, actually, God's placed you here without saying God's placed you here. What he's saying to Esther here is crucial. God's going to make a way for his people, whether you act or not. But if you don't act, you will have to suffer a consequence. And then the kicker that he comes in with is that you are in the right place at the right time. This is what you were made for. 
This is literally what you were made for. And friends, can I encourage you this morning? It is not a mistake that each and every one of you were put into this world uh, for this generation to be alive right now and even in this room right now hearing this encouragement. There is something in each and every one of you, whether it's a spiritual gift, whether it is an experience that you are to share, whether it's boldness that you are stepping into or skills that you can teach others um, that God has purposed for you for such a generation as this. And even just so cool with Emily stepping in, I, I love that. And I love that that's just such perfect timing. I just saw you over there, Em. And that is so something that I see in your life too. As we come to a close today, I want to point out two final things really quickly. That the name of God may not physically be mentioned in the book of Esther, but it is actually concealed in Hebrew as an acrostic poem five times. The patterns that we see in the Hebrew text, each time they are mentioned, it explains whether or not God initiates something or if he is allowing it to happen, right? And also it indicates what that something is about. So the Lord's name may never have been mentioned, but he was still very, very present and working on behalf of his people. That's what I love about this book. And also when you know the outcome, you can trust the process. The second thing is this, the structure of the book of Esther, and lean into this one as we close. Uh, Keys, you can come and join me. The structure of the book of Esther is called a chiasm, and this means that the writer, who's thought to be Mordecai, interestingly enough, not Esther, I thought it would have been, um, but the, the structure of the text was designed as a perfect symmetry and to imitate the letter of an X, right? So like a cross-shaped pattern where everything in the top half almost comes down and gets worse and worse until there's a point in the text where everything flips, right? There's that dramatic irony where everything flipped in that moment that Haman wanted Mordecai dead and then the king wanted Mordecai to be praised and Haman ends up being the one to do that thing. That's the whole dramatic flip in the text, and that's the way that that is structured. Um, from then onwards, the symmetry then fills what once seemed hopeless in the top half uh, and w fills it with its equal counterpart, giving hope to the readers for the second half that actually looks forward into the future. If we understand this structure in the book of Esther, we understand something very, very key that the reader is trying to tell us that often goes way over our heads. And it is that the book of Esther mirrors the entire Bible. The Old Testament is like that top half of the symmetrical pattern where everything gets worse and worse as it's channeled downwards to a point where something flips. That point is when Jesus comes on the scene as our sacrifice once and for all and flips the script completely. Right? Everything gets worse and worse and then everything changes. And in the New Testament, we can now see the hope that once seemed hopeless because we now know what happened on that cross allows us access back to be reconciled with God.